As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The presenting sponsor of The Audible is Trader Joe's. Inside Trader Joe's is a five-part podcast series that takes you literally inside Trader Joe's. Go inside the TJ's tasting panel, travel to wineries in Napa Valley, and around the world to discover the next great Trader Joe's products. Discover why they wear those super fashionable Hawaiian shirts. You'll find Inside Trader Joe's on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to The Audible. I'm Stuart Mandel, joined as always by Bruce Feldman. Hey, it's a Monday. The old familiar pattern, the old familiar schedule is back, Bruce. That's a good thing. All right. Anything going on in college football right now? A little bit of an investigation at the biggest Big Ten school. Mm -hmm. Has it caught your attention at all now? Yeah, a little bit. I've only written about, I don't know, three columns about it already. We just talked about this on Thursday on the podcast. We had Brett McMurphy on, and then there were all these bombshell developments on Friday. Also, training camp has opened around the country, and at Alabama's first media session, Jalen Hurts had some interesting comments, to say the least. Coming up, we have on the Athletics Alabama writer, Aaron Suttles, to talk about that and some more news coming out of Crimson Tide camp. But first, the latest on Urban Meyer. So on Friday, we had a bit of a dueling statements or fast-moving set of interviews. We had Urban Meyer comment for the first time since he was put on administrative leave. He puts out a statement and says, oh, when I said at Big Ten Media Days that there was nothing to that 2015 allegation, I knew nothing about it. Actually, I did know about something, we, but I followed proper protocol. You know, I take domestic violence very seriously. But I apologize for not being totally... How did he word it? He said he wasn't prepared to answer those questions at Big Ten Media Day, and therefore he wasn't accurate. He never said, I lied, or anything quite that strong. But clearly he did. Then, not long after that, Zach Smith goes on Columbus Radio Station. He goes on ESPN. He swears he never abused his wife. But he is responsible for all of her injuries. Take that for what you will. He also brings into the equation that Gene Smith, the Ohio State AD, was the one who pulled him off the road in 2015 when when he became informed about these allegations. 
He says Urban Meyer did everything right. And he keeps saying that this was a marital issue that should have been kept private, that I don't know, he took some sort of offense to the idea that the football program had to investigate him because, of course, in his mind, he did nothing wrong. So, And then on Sunday night, uh, Ohio State puts out a statement that this committee has been formed, a law firm has been hired, just as we predicted. And interestingly, they say this investigation will be completed within 14 days. So within 14 days, it's 13 days as of today, Monday, we will know whether Urban Meyer will remain Ohio State's coach or not. All right, so let's get to some key parts here. Let's let's start with the Urban Meyer tweet, and it was a statement that he put out of his Twitter account. It did not come from the Ohio State football account. Here's what I think is the most telling paragraph, and we'll see if it holds up. Here is the truth. While at the University of Florida and now at the Ohio State University, I have always followed proper reporting protocols and procedures, and when I have learned of an incident involving a student-athlete, coach, or member of our staff by elevating the issues to the proper channels. And I did so regarding the Zach Smith incident in 2015. I take that responsibility very seriously. And any suggestion to the contrary is simply false. Okay, so we have about two weeks between when this investigation started and when they said it will be wrapped up. They said it will be wrapped up within within those 14 days from Sunday night. It could be wrapped up faster. I think what they they have to figure out is what's the documentation or corroborating evidence to support whether Urban Meyer in that paragraph I just read is that backs up. If it does, I think he's still going to be the head coach at Ohio State. I think that what's interesting a little bit, and this is something I had alluded to earlier in the week, was do we know how he found out? Because if he had if he had spoken to his boss in 2009, which he said he did, and that we presume is Jeremy Foley. Why would he have not done it in 2015? Uh, as it's come out, at least according to Zach Smith, was Gene Smith actually was the one who notified Urban Meyer, and they had talked about this investigation that the police had handled, and no charges were were brought up. So I think just from that statement, as well as seeing the extensive Zach Smith interview with ESPN, as well as listening to some of it on you know his radio interview that came before it, I think Zach Smith probably helped urban meyer than he helped himself quite honestly i didn't think he looked i don't know just on on glance and watching it i didn't feel like did you think he looked believable in in how he answered a lot of those questions no because he doesn't have explanations for some some pretty um important things like where did you know if you never abused her what are all those injuries in those photos and you know within five minutes of him claiming he never abused her, Brett McMurphy came back with another text exchange between Zach and Courtney where she brings up, hey, remember when you strangled me in on vacation and blah, 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 and he doesn't say, he says, like, I know, you know, I'm so sorry. So, I, look, I get, Dan Murphy is the reporter for ESPN who got this interview, and I give him all the credit in the world. That was a big get. I thought that ESPN maybe gave him a little bit, because they just kept coming back and showing more and more of it, and it was kind of, gross, to be honest with you. If you know anything about domestic abuse, it was pretty much the classic case of the guy who won't accept any responsibility. And I mean, I felt like I was watching a domestic, a serial domestic abuser explain away all of his wife's injuries as not being his fault. So it was kind of gross, frankly, to watch. What do you make of the fact that the police had investigated this and there were no charges? I think that that's impossible for us to answer. You know, there's a lot of, here's, here's there's a high threshold. How do I put it? There's a high bar that has to be met 
for charges to be brought. It's not as simple as, well, she was inju- here's some injuries she has, and she says he did it, so he's arrested. I just the domestic. This is why it's so complicated. It's very, it's very, very hard. And of course, people are asking questions now. Did he get special treatment? You know, how could they have kept coming back to the house over and over again and never arrested or charged him with anything? I don't know. It's hard to know, but here's here's yeah. my thing with this too is just you're right. It is really complicated. What I feel like, you know, to have taken a step back from this story, I think Brett McMurphy's original Facebook story kind of has two stories that ended up getting intertwined. The first one, which I feel like Brett has a lot of texts on and 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 has a, has a lot of uh, pictures from from the ex-wife is about a really messy, screwed up relationship. The second part is about how Ohio State and Urban Meyer handled it. And that part I feel like is still, we don't know a ton about. We saw Urban Meyer clearly not give, whether he wanted to call them thoughtful answers, whether he was prepared or not, people can look at that, you know, however they want to look at it. That didn't certainly did not help Ohio State and Urban Meyer's case, but we don't know what Ohio State did about that. And ultimately, that part of the story, I think, is the one that we're, that is the thing that this isn't going to absolve Zach Smith or Courtney Smith or whatnot, but I think that's the part that we'll get an answer to sooner than later. You know, people may not like the answer they get, but that's what the investigation is going to dig into. And it's possible, you know, did both those guys end up directing and putting it back on Gene Smith? We'll see. I mean, it's very interesting how this is going to, this is going to play out. And my hunch is this really messy story is only going to get messier. Well, I think that what happened between Zach Smith and his wife is awful, but that's not what Ohio State not what's ultimately going to be the key issue of this investigation like you said there's the there's the and it should be very easy to document if in fact all the boxes were checked at the time you know what was the what was the process that took place once the police notified ohio state about this and it may be that they did follow their their own protocol you know yeah i mean i think it comes back to did in urban meyer's case did urban meyer follow university procedures and policies if he did and they've determined that he's going to be back as the head coach of Ohio State. Well, you say that, but there's another question. It's the one I wrote about on Friday. Everybody is focused on reporting protocol, and I get that. That's you know the key, the most important thing that needs to be found out. But regard, even if it turns out they did everything by the book, I still have serious questions and about why Urban Meyer kept Zach Smith on, why he hired him in the first place, and why he kept him on his staff especially from 2015 on, because he kept him on his staff for three years, despite all of these red flags, despite now you already knew this happened once at Florida. Now you're going to call it again. And we don't know. We'll probably find out, you know, how many other instances were they aware of. And as I've said many times now, Twitter, arguing with Ohio State fans, the guy doesn't need to be convicted of a crime for you to justify letting him go assistant coaches get let go all the time for especially very if you, especially if you say reasons. you have a zero tolerance policy about sexual violence i mean there's enough red flags here to be, just be you know what why am i going to stake my career first of all he was the most expendable of their assistant coaches he's been there from the beginning and he's never been promoted he's their lowest paid assistant that should tell you where his standing was on the staff 
why are you going to stake your reputation to this guy? Now, I think we know one of, if not the reasons, grandson of his mentor, Earl Bruce. There's a lot of loyalty there. But this guy should have been nowhere near college kids. He just shouldn't have. And, but I, what I don't know, what we don't know is, is that part of this investigation? Like, is this investigation very narrowly focused on whether protocols were followed in 2015? And if they were, he's fine. And if they weren't, he's fired. Or is there going to be a question to, for this board uh, to consider of, hey, how come the head football coach was allowed to keep this guy in his staff? Why do you, um, why do you think, what do you think they should be in their purview? Do you think it should be the latter as well? Oh, absolutely. Uh, this is a, this is it a sounds question. Like, it sounds like, not to put words in your mouth, but just judging by the, the, the words you just used, it sounds like you think Urban Meyer should be gone. Uh, no, you are putting words in my mouth. I'd like to hear the reasons. I'd like to know, I mean, frankly, we need to know what Urban knew, right? Did he know about this one incident? Was well, I think Smith also, we, need to, we also need to know, I mean, I'm not taking up for Zach Smith. I don't know the inner workings of this relationship. The stuff I've seen, stuff I've seen looks really bad. I yeah. think that, you know, for you, you know, for us to make a determination, and when I say us, I'm not talking about just me and you, I think for it's the, the public as weighing in on this, I think we need to have a better handle on, you know, we've seen some, some texts from Courtney Smith. The police were the ones who investigated this. I, I agree with you. There's a lot of ugly cases that the police have, have and I don't say necessarily the Powell police in this case, I'm talking about in general, we've heard plenty of cases over the years of domestic abuse situations that didn't meet the threshold and that escalated into something even more tragic. So I think we need to find out more on that part. I guess how I looked at it and initially, and maybe this is just too rigid in the thought process, was did he follow university protocols and procedures in how he handled things? That was one piece. You're talking about a second piece, which I think is much more nuanced. That's and I'm right. not saying you're wrong for this, but it's much more nuanced whether uh, why did why did you keep him, especially in light of you're saying you have a zero tolerance policy of domestic violence. And the fact that there were no charges, does that say, OK, there's nothing? I mean, you know, he and his wife and his wife certainly was involved in their relationship and had a different level of understanding than the average probably coach's wife would have. So I'm curious as to how that part's going to play out. As I said, it's messy. I think it's only going to get messier. I don't know the answers to this, and I'm okay with saying I don't know what should be. Yeah, the reason I'm stopping short of calling for his job just for keeping Zach Smith on the staff is, like you said, like the, the following protocol thing is pretty cut and dry. The other part of it is a judgment call. And it's a, it's basically kind of a, you know, what's your moral measuring stick here? I will say that if this board is investigating that and does come to the conclusion that he, sh you know, Zach Smith should have been let go a long time ago, that they ignored too many red flags, et cetera, et cetera. I don't know what the, I can't think of a proper, uh, what am I trying to say here? Like disciplinary thing short of firing him. Like what would it, what would be the criticism Ohio State would get if they came out and said, yeah, he should have fired him a long time ago. We're not going to fire him, but we want to send a message that that was bad, so he's suspended for four games. Like, people aren't going to accept that. Right, because at the end of the day, you're still saying it was, it was bad, but it wasn't that bad. Right, so I think the two outcomes here are they very narrowly define it as, well, he, he followed all the protocols and 
oh, you know, we, we regret that, you know, we wish we did have the fuller picture at the time. If we had, he would have been gone. But based on the knowledge that these guys had, you know, they followed all the protocols. Then he's going to stay the coach. And with some, you know, safeguards put in, recommendations of safeguards be put in place to avoid this in the future. If it is going to include the Zach Smith shouldn't have been kept on the staff part and that they think he really, really erred, then I think there's going to be either a firing or a resignation or a settlement. I just, it does seem to me that there's no in-between on this. Yeah, my my hunch is it's not going to go to the threshold you're talking about. Again, I, I'll be honest, I don't know, have any inside knowledge on that part of it. Um, it's all speculation at this point. I mean, there have been other people who have said, other media members who have said after talking to lawyers, they think that that statement he put out was basically like a step toward negotiating a better settlement. So... It's, but we're all just guessing. We don't know. We'll, this will be one of the most eagerly awaited um, investigative reports I can remember. Yeah. I, I Again, and I, I think your point on it is an interesting one. I, also, we don't know what what necessarily, because and Urban Meyer, like I said, didn't address this at, at any extent, as far as I know, at Big Ten Media Days about what changed. Why did you fire him that Monday night? Before big, before he was to sp- speak at Big Ten Media Days, right? And that just shows you he really could have let him go at any point if he thought he was a liability because he let him go. Well, it, it does no it real. We don't. Yeah. We don't know the conversations about internally that could have happened between Urban Meyer, Gene Smith, and and Zach Smith at that point. We really don't know. So I don't want to. I don't want to jump to the conclusion that shows you this because. There could have been a conversation that happened in light of all that stuff that they revisited, and maybe Zach Smith's answers didn't, you know, didn't match up. Who knows? There was a development. People keep saying, "Oh, he got fired because the report came out," but like, there was a development in the last few weeks where he got trespass, criminal trespassing for what, in and of itself, would not be seem like that big a deal. That he didn't, you know, go to their agreed to meeting point for the drop off. That he showed up at her door or her driveway. But obviously, this is part of a much, much, much larger pattern. By the way, what does that say about how much of a threat she viewed him as that that they had to have um, that they had to like do these these drop offs of their children in neutral locations? Like he, he couldn't do it at her house. You know, that's that's troubling in and of itself. But like it you is, said, but um, it, it, they have a very volatile relationship, and who knows? You know, it's 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 a strange place. I think volatile is almost not doing it right it's, it was a violent I, relationship i don't know Stu. i mean we're not we're not there i just again i don't know the dynamic of the relationship well enough on this at all you know i'm not saying zach smith deserves pity on this i'm not saying but i feel like we're making a like we as as people looking out whether we're in the media or we're, we're seeing what's out there i think we're making a lot of determinations over something that you know i'm not not always comfortable when it starts digging into when we start discussing people's private lives because we just really don't know a ton about it no that's true and um you know we don't have access to you know there have been a couple incident reports that came out but we don't have necessarily access to all of the reasons why the police were called out all the times that they were but again that's not really for us to figure out that's not really at the center of this it's really ohio state and how they handled this and how they think Urban Meyer handled it. And also, I've seen people making a big deal of the fact he lied at Big Ten Media Days. You know, as a media member, I don't like that, but that's he's not going to get fired for 
giving misleading answers at a conference media days. No, that is, he certainly didn't do himself any favors with that because I think that escalated Brett's story. Like I said, I think there were two. Turned out there were two storylines that con- that converged. I think there was the Zach Smith messed up relationship with his ex-wife story that I think, like I said, I think Brett had a lot of a lot of details on. And then when Urban's answer was Urban's, you know, series of answers. I mean, I was only there for the morning session. I I knew you were there for the afternoon. I think that just gave that other story a lot more legs and quite honestly made it more of a national story. You know, I still think what you, what you were talking about the second part of this, which is why did he keep him on knowing that still, I think, um, you know, unless he had answered it differently, I think that piece still is, uh, is open for interpretation, but the other part of it just kind of really blew up because of how he answered things. I have no good way to segue this, so we'll just say, in other developments, Alabama, like I said earlier, Jalen Hurts commenting for the first time about the whole offseason storyline of whether or not he's going to transfer and the handling of the quarterback quarterback race with him and Tua. Let's bring on our Alabama writer, Aaron Suttles. All right, very pleased to be joined now by the Athletics' own Aaron Suttles. He was at Bryant-Denny, I believe it was, on Saturday. It was... Aaron, what was Fan Appreciation Day? Yeah, it was Media Day slash Fan Day. And one opportunity fans get to watch a practice, and they've um, they moved it up this year, so it was a little a lot earlier than normal. But um, it certainly provided enough uh, firework for the college football world. I was going to say, also your first opportunity to talk to their two quarterbacks since the national championship game. So I'll let you and and you know, Aaron had a nice article on this on the Athletic as well. But paint the scene of how. It was for you guys when Jalen started talking. Well, I had gotten kind of tipped off earlier in the week that, hey, the quarterbacks are going to be made available. They're not going to make a big deal of it, but you need to be there. The quarterbacks will be there. And this person said to me, Jalen really has some stuff he wants to say. And that, of course, my ears went up when I heard that. And I knew something was coming to the extent that it was what Jalen said on Saturday. I was completely kind of caught off guard and shocked. I did not expect him to be that strong in his language. Not that he said anything particularly uh, explosive or anything, but it's just from Alabama's perspective that they control the message so well that you rarely hear anything like what we heard from Jalen Hurts. And what, what I took from that is that he feels like he's out here on this island, that his dad's comments from April that said, he, you know, if he didn't win the job, he'd be the biggest free agent in the history of college football. And then Nick Saban's comments at uh, SEC Media Days on July 18th, where he, where he answered a question about whether Jalen would be on the roster for Louisville with, I have no idea. felt like Jalen kind of feels like he's out on an island where everyone's talking for him and talking about him, about something that involves his character, his integrity. And he, he felt like everyone's talking about me. I'm, I'm going to talk about myself. Hey, I did Aaron. not read into Jalen's comments. Yeah. Aaron, I, I was just curious. So you covered spring football. They make a, a bunch of people available. Did it seem odd that you have a former SEC Offensive Player of the Year not made available at all during the spring? No, because it's Alabama. Uh, they just, I, I got the sense they were trying to protect him, but you're right, Bruce. You got a two-year starter at quarterback, and you don't feel comfortable enough making him available to the media. From a grand scheme of things, yes, it was odd, but being around the Alabama program, I didn't particularly think it was all that odd because of the way they handled the media, but Jalen certainly didn't appreciate it. Here's, here's where I was going with that, though. So 
you have a guy who in a really, really emotionally tricky situation after the national title game, after he, he gets benched, after Tua comes in and rallies them, and he handles it flawlessly with Tom Rinaldi on national TV. So you have a guy, and you know him infinitely better than Stu and I do. You're around there all the time. But, man, if there was one guy you would think you could, you could trust to be out there and handle it the right way, it's him. And so that's the part that kind of seems interesting to me. And on the, you know, on the heels of that, you know, I was around those guys, both quarterbacks at the Elite 11, and I knew I was going to hear them speak. And in addition, I had talked to Alabama about, kind of gave them a heads up, you know, just because it was normally it seems like it, you wouldn't have to have to worry about how this the school would react to a uh, to a, one of their players speaking off off campus at one of these kinds of things. Like I never did that with Connor Cook at Michigan State or a bunch of other places, but I gave that courtesy out to Alabama. And obviously there had been some a little bit of friction, I guess, caused by Tua's family okaying an AL.com. I don't know what you are availability, I guess. And so it just seemed like the way he reacted was kind of like him turning back to Alabama and, and just kind of like throwing up his hands going, Hey, you know, I, I'll do the right thing, but you got to trust me to do the right thing. Cause I usually do. Yeah. And, and I think that's what he meant when he, he, he you know, his first, uh, the first thing he said to us was, it's really good to see you guys, which he's never said that before which kind of uh, made us all kind of chuckle. And he said, I felt like they've been hiding me from you. So I, I think, I think he feels assaulted. I think he's, his character feels assaulted. I think his integrity feels insulted based on all the people that think he wouldn't do the right thing. Be it, albeit in a, an interview situation or to stick around and not quit on his teammates for the 2018 season. Aaron, you've been covering Nick Saban's tenure from the beginning. Have there been any instances, if ever, that a active Alabama player called out Nick Saban like Jalen Hurst did? Wow. Not while they were still around, no. That's what I, mean, I figured. I, I think, yeah, not to the media. I think there were some issues with Blake Barnett and his dad behind the scenes that kind of leaked out, but, but no one's gone in front of the press and, and made strong remarks like Jalen did. Just to follow up on that, so not to take Saban's side by any means, but I was there that day, you were as well, when he was asked that question, it was actually by Dennis Dodd. And when he said kind of flippantly, I have no idea, I didn't take that to mean his status is up in the air. I have no idea how it's going to be resolved. It was him being sick of answering those kind of questions. And so when somebody asks him that, he kind of dismissively says, I have no idea. But if you're, I could see where if you're him and you see that clip playing over and over again on TV or you say it and see it in writing or both, that you'd be pretty miffed that your head coach hung you out to dry like that. Yeah, and, and that's a good point because I've had other people reference that to me too. I mean, I guess only really Nick Saban knows the answer to that question, but he's, he's so calculated in every regard with his remarks to the media. It's almost, you had to get the sense that he knew that question was coming, and for him to say, I have no idea, at least the way that Jalen took it, especially when Jalen says he went to him in, in June, a month before SEC media days, and told him he would be there, that's the way Jalen took it. But I could absolutely see because everywhere he's gone since the national championship game, it's questions about the quarterback. So I can absolutely see him being, you know what, guys, I have no idea. I'm sick of answering this question. But the way it played on the clip over and over, I can also see how Jalen took it. Aaron, do you think this matters? 
to Nick Saban or matters at a hint at all, a wisp in 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 how this quarterback battle will play out? No, I think Nick Saban's too smart. I think he probably wasn't pleased that Jalen did that, but I don't think he's going to be punitive in his response either. I think he's going to be level-headed. That take him at his word that we have two quarterbacks we can win with. We're in a really enviable position, and you guys keep wanting me to name a starter, but why does one guy have to be one first team and one guy have to be second team? Why can't they just have roles? I get the sense that you know he's going to be very level-headed about it, and I don't know if you guys caught the the Sunday Sports Center interview that he did, but he said he's learned that he uh, when he gets angry, he doesn't always make the best decisions. He actually said that in an interview, and, and so I think he there's a little bit of self-realization, self-awareness that when he's angry, sometimes he doesn't make the best decisions. So I think he'll you know take Saturday night or Sunday or whenever it was in, in between when he talks to Jalen, he'll calm down and. I think he'll let the competition play out in fall camp. So I did see that interview, and it's part of a series, I guess, that ESPN is going to run later this week where they have inside access to Alabama training camp. And he said, you're right, he said, you know, over the years he doesn't get as angry as quickly. He realizes the message is not as effective. Part of that same segment, they showed, I guess, what's an annual tradition of him taking the freshman out on his boat around the lake there and, uh, you know, having some fun. So my question for you is, like you said, he, everything he does is planned. Is that a calculated attempt to say, hey, I'm not the jerk everybody says I am. Look, I can have fun with these guys one day out of the year. Or is that really him now? Like he's not, I don't want to say mellowed, but he's not what he was, what we saw and what he was portrayed to be five, you know, even five, maybe even ten, five to ten years ago. I think it's somewhere in the middle. I think there has been a very concerted effort in Alabama's part over the last year to get more friendly, more fun on social media, to recruits, to show that they do have fun at Alabama. But I also think there's a genuineness to it that when he first started doing that, he, he I don't think he realized that a lot of these kids, some of them have never been, never been on a boat. Some of them have never been able to go tubing and how much fun that is. And I think he saw the joy in that. And he, I, I think he honestly does enjoy that. But, but there's also some calculatedness to it too because he's bringing the school's videographer and they're making instant social media videos to put up. So it's, it's calculated, but I also think he really does enjoy that role of, of being able to give someone an experience that maybe they've never had before. I wonder how much of that is, you know, I think the idea used to be that they didn't need to do all that stuff. They could just, they sign the number one class every year. They didn't need all the bells and whistles that other schools do to recruit. But then this past year, Georgia passed them and they I, they did not have the number one class. He obviously, you know, it's it's well documented that some of the assistant coaches he hired this year were specifically younger guys in an attempt to get recruiting back. I don't want to say get it back in the right direction because they still signed a top 10 class, but re-energize recruiting. I, I, I'm going to go on a limb and guess some of this fun stuff you're talking about as part of that. Absolutely. And and, and to, to, to translate that to social media, there's a I remember the first, I think it was the first little social media video they did last year was Nick Saban on a little golf cart and he's spinning around like he's in Mario Kart. And I remember looking at one of the media relations guys and like, did you guys really put that out? And, and they kind of shrugged and said, yeah, it's, it's kind of what we're doing now. And I think it's absolutely, Stuart, I think it's absolutely in response to what Kirby Spart is doing at Georgia. And uh, Alabama felt the recruiting slipping a little bit. That's why they... That was, that was the whole reason they changed that entire staff. Pretty much. I wonder if some it's of it all also, recruiting. 
if some of it's also related to like Dabo has a theme park at Clemson and all there's yeah. a, there's a there's a water slide and there's a bowling alley and there's a miniature golf thing and Dabo is the you know and like they're recruiting at a super high level as well. I feel like that's even more more of a different tone than the vibe you seem to see from Alabama. And I don't know where Georgia fits maybe in the middle of that or not, but yeah, I, I just think you know I, I remember thinking last year. But I, th- I was middle of summer, and they had six commitments for the 2018 class. And I remember, like, thinking to myself, this is really different. And, and it's behind the scenes, they're telling you, well, we're just being more deliberate in, in who we're choosing. And so we're not in a spot where numbers are tied at the end if there are players available. And, and it wasn't a bad class, but it, it wasn't the Alabama class that they had in 2017 or a number one class at all. And they were getting negative recruited against. And it, I think that message was really hitting home for the first time. And that's why you've seen Josh Gaddis and Brett Key tweeting out, we have fun at Alabama too, accentuating that, yeah, we put in a lot of work. Yeah, that, that's what we're going to do here. But we also can have some fun. I think that was a message they wanted to get to recruits. My last Alabama question would be, so for all the attention we're understandably placing on Jalen versus Tua, in your opinion, Aaron, is that the biggest question that will determine whether they – win the national championship this year, or is it something else that people aren't talking about enough about? Ah, that's a great question. I, I think they could get back to a national championship game with any three quarterbacks on their roster. And, yes, I realize I said three because Mac Jones is uh, – I think he could play winning football with a team around him. But, you know, it, I do think there are some issues on on the defense that, that – you know, I always go back to – I looked it up, guys, since 2008 – and, and they lose talent to the NFL every single year. But since 2008, they finished outside of the top 10 in total defense once. And that was, I believe, 2013 or 14. And I think they finished 13. So no matter what they lose every year, they still have one of the best defenses in the country. But on the surface, the two inside linebackers, they're young. I think by the season's end, they're going to be nightmares. But you got a defensive coordinator who's never called a defense, calling it in to Mac Wilson who's got some questions about his leadership that Nick Saban has addressed. So that's an issue. And then six new starters out of that dime defense in the secondary. And of course, I think losing Terrell Lewis is huge. I thought he was going to combine with Raekwon Davis to just wreak havoc on teams passing games this year with, from a pass rush standpoint. And they got bodies that can replace Terrell Lewis, but they don't have that physical specimen that was Terrell Lewis. My guess, Stu, is no one's going to feel it. <laughs> yeah. too, much, too much sympathy for Nick, Nick Saban. We see what yeah, Blake exactly. Davis looks like in a bunch of those I, guys. I do remember that one defense that I guess was the one that finished outside the top 10 and where they actually, the weakness was, was DBs, was corners in particular. The years where Johnny Manziel uh, threw for 8 gazillion yards on them and then Trevor Knight in the Sugar Bowl. Like They had that brief period yeah. where they were a little bit mortal back there. and then Yeah. yeah. And if you look at the schedule, the way it sets up, I don't think Ole Miss is going to beat them because I don't think Ole Miss has the defense to stop Alabama at all. But I think they can throw the ball with those wide receivers they have in in Jordan Tiamo, and they get Drew Locke early in the season. So a couple shootouts early on, does Missouri come into Tuscaloosa and beat Nick Saban? Probably not. But would it really surprise anyone if early in the year one that that secondary's finding sea legs or Drew Locke had a big game against them? I don't know that any of us would be too terribly surprised by that. So – uh, the way the schedule sets up early on to test that defense, but overall the schedule is one that that's why I say I think they could get to the college football playoff with any one of those three quarterbacks playing. I would agree with that. Aaron, thanks for joining us. It's uh, it's great to have you on board at, at The Athletic. You are a, a, a just a 
a uh, great resource for our readers as well as for us on all things Alabama. We appreciate you taking the time today. Guys, thanks for having me. It's an honor to, to uh, join The Athletic with uh, two esteemed gentlemen and reporters like yourself. You're too kind. All right. Thank you so much, Aaron. All right. Take care. All right, Bruce, it's mailbag time. Do you miss that Rob Stone jingle we used to play from the mailbag time? I do miss the Rob Stone jingle. Yeah, we could theoretically bring it back. I think we still own the rights to it. As always, you can send your emails to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. All right, we're going to go there, even though it's entirely possible Urban Meyer will be the Ohio State coach for next year in a long time. But Rob Ledford asked an interesting one. Stu and Bruce, if that happens, odds that or if he gets fired, odds that Jeff Brom becomes the next head coach of the Ohio State University. Odds, I would say nine to one. That's pretty strong. All things considered, you didn't say like 100 to 1. No, I think Jeff Brom's a terrific coach. He's a great offensive mind. He is from that region of the country. And that's a job you leave Purdue for without even thinking twice about it. You'd have to. You'd you'd have to, yeah. I mean, and look, if you ask me who are the 10, who are the five or 10 best coaches who I do not think would ever leave where they're at, and I would put like, you know, Nick Saban in there. I would put Jimbo in there. I would put Chris Peterson in there. And that, and then the list starts getting a lot shorter. So, and if you ask me where like Jeff Brom lines up with the other ones, pretty high. And the fact yeah. that he's from that area, again, he's not from Ohio, but he's not from, he can drive to Columbus from, from Louisville. So, yeah, I would put him high on the list. But I again, mean, the, the, the two that, that, that I think of first, and Bob Stoops is not one of them, are Brom and Matt Campbell. So it may just come down to, if that were the case, you know, which one has the better season this year and is considered the hotter coach at the time. By the way, props to Matt Campbell, who got asked about the speculation. He's a Mount Union guy and obviously coached at Toledo before Iowa State. I thought he was very blunt and honest in how he handled it, and I think you can't expect much more. Like That was kind of textbook on what, if you're an AD... Or even if you're a media member, which you'd hope somebody would be like, address the address the elephant in the room, say what you want, and then if I'm an Ohio, uh, Iowa State person, I am thrilled at how he handled it. Doesn't you're saying anything? Be- yeah, you're saying because he addressed it without even being asked. I'm sure it was it had come up. I didn't see the questions before the video yeah. tape I saw. But he basically he never he never said specifically Ohio State. He just said, you know, I'm guys. I'm never going to address a question about something at another institution. He just kept saying that over and over again. Yeah, but I guess Next that's, question. that's better than dodging it. Yeah, I think so. Andrew Miller in Gulfport, Mississippi, has a question about his Mississippi State Bulldogs this season. In week two, Mississippi State travels to Manhattan, Kansas to take on K-State. I've heard a lot of talk about how that's supposed to be a very tough road trip and how the Wildcats have a great home field advantage. But in the last five years, K-State has not beaten a top 25 team at home, and they are just 4-9 against FPS teams that finished with at least eight wins, and those wins came against UL Lafayette, Louisiana Tech, West Virginia, and Iowa State. I respect Bill Snyder, and I think K-State could be decent this year, but if Mississippi State is as good as they're supposed to be, I'm not sure where the trouble would come from. What am I missing about their stadium that makes it so difficult to play at, and why is this narrative out there about their home field advantage? This is really a question about Kansas State more than Mississippi State. Yeah, I don't have a great answer for that, because the one game I did at K-State, TCU drilled them, and it was a seven-hour extravaganza. They're, they just really struggled. I uh, look, I think part of why they're, it's a tough place to play. It's not, it's, I think sometimes people look at it and go, okay, 
we don't know a ton of guys on their team. I think sometimes people take them for granted, quite honestly. I don't have a better answer than that because I don't think, you know, having done games in pretty much every Big 12 venue, I don't think K-State is, is at the top of the end when it comes to the noise factor. I mean, it's a, it's a cool little college town, but I, I don't know what the answer would be on that. I don't think it's the stadium or the atmosphere. I just think that Kansas State is a very well-coached team that has a history of sneaking up on people. Now, it, these are some pretty interesting stats. And, uh, I mean, they've not been great the last couple of years. Nobody would deny that. There was a couple of years ago, I remember they were 3-6 and six and had to win their last three to get to bowl eligibility. Last year, they started out slow, and then they won a bunch of games at the end of the season. But, you know, if you look through the history of Kansas State, and the reason why I'm pretty high on them this year, when he has an experienced quarterback coming back, and he has two of them this year, uh, and a strong, like, experienced on the lines of scrimmage, like, that's, that's when he has those seasons where they sneak up and win 10 games. So I think that's why it's... And by the way, it's not like Mississippi State is coming off a New Year Six Bowl. You know, everybody's very high on them. Joe Moorhead, great hire. But, I mean, is there any reason why they would be a heavy favorite going to, on the road to play K-State? A heavy favorite? No. But I would say they would be a, a slight favorite. favorite. Oh, comfortable ah. favorite. Comfortable favorite, yeah. Look, Nick Fitzgerald, I think he's a really good fit for Joe Moorhead. They got some real nasty D linemen who are big and athletic. And really good running back. I think they should, I would see them being at least a touchdown favorite. That's what I was about to say, like a seven-point favorite. Yeah, seven to ten points. Okay, remember how you asked people to phonetically spell their names? I did. This person did not do it, so we're getting ready for me to botch it. From Patrick Bacher. Gents, love the pot as always. As a Texas A&M, Texas A&M fan, I liked some of them, but felt that the constant shotgun four wide and lack of emphasis on the running game fundamentally did not work in the SEC. After a couple of practices, Travion Williams, their stud running back, repeatedly stated that the offense was, quote, almost exclusively in the I formation. Should Aggie fans be concerned that the offense has swung too far in the opposite direction given where modern football is, or can we take heart from the addition of O.C. Daryl Dickey from Memphis? Can I take that one? You can. I would be concerned, not necessarily in terms of an overall philosophy, because obviously Jimbo Fisher won a national championship in a lot of games running an I-formation pro-style offense, but I'd be a little bit concerned for this coming season because we've seen this before. When you try to drastically shift from a spread to a pro style or vice versa, it can get pretty messy. Now that is, he's basing that on a couple of practices. Maybe that's what they were just choosing to work on in those practices. And that it'll actually be more of a blend. I mean, he has in the past, Jimbo has said that he's going to try to blend the two this first season. So that would be my concern on the long run. He's going to have the ability to recruit great players and great athletes that could play, you know, fit perfectly fine in a, in a pro style offense. But you know, the guys that he's, working with this year, including the quarterbacks, were definitely recruited to play in the... Do you call someone's offense air raid or disciple of the air raid? It was... Uh, you know, I mean, I wouldn't call it that. I mean, I would say it was a, definitely a you know spread. But when he had Cliff Kingsbury, it definitely was heavy elements of the air raid and Jake Spavital to some degree. Uh, Noel Mazzoni, I wouldn't call that, even though no, he's that's a lot, true. A lot of time shifted to on those guys. Well, <laughs> once he shifted to Mazzoni, it was more of a... Just you wouldn't use that air raid lingo and that's also probably when it became less of an efficient uh, running game they had a great rushing offense at first but it was because of johnny manzel well you take and it was very equation. different though like johnny's system in that would be you know people would talk about zone read it was almost never the zone read what it was it would be four wide johnny would take the snap everybody would kind of get away 
and then Johnny would take off. Yeah. And so he, he was running to open space and it helped that he had Mike Evans, who was a absolute mismatch nightmare for every defense. So uh, I think that was part of it. I do think Trayvon Williams is really good and probably got a little overshadowed or underutilized in the old offense. So if we, you know, somebody wasn't on this podcast. Somebody asked me for like a, no, Dark sorry. That was actually on our, on a radio interview at SEC media days. Trayvon Williams was sitting like 10 feet from me doing his own radio interview and the person asked, who's a, who's a dark horse Heisman candidate that absolutely nobody's talking about? And I said, how about Travion Williams? Do you think he heard you and then became a, a, an athletic survi- survivor? <laughs> <laughs> Probably not, but, you know, it is, by the way, I don't know. I don't know how many college football players, probably hardly any are subscribers to Athletic, but it's been very cool as you go on the media day circuit to find out how many coaches are. I know we've got the Mountain West. We may be, how many teams are in the Mountain West? 12? We may yeah, be 12 sure. for 12. Or 11 for 12. Do you think know. Rocky Long really subscribes? Heck yeah, we keep writing about San Diego State. Hmm. Chantel went there last year and did a big story on their running backs coach and all the success he's had. I wrote about them. So, yes. Let, I, me, let me ask you this question. I just came into my head. And this can't, you can't cheat and say, okay, because we know some coaches who already are subscribers or whatever. But the coach that you would most likely think subscribes that you don't know and the coach that would be most shocked to find out he subscribes. Well, so you're saying there's a few we know take, of. And, one and take way out or the Bill other. Snyder on this. Take out Bill Snyder on this. <laughs> Wait, so you're saying like Which we know coach? we know Lane Kiffin subscribes, so I can't say him. Yeah, we know Mike Sanford subscribes. You know, but take out people you know and just say which coach would you most likely think subscribes if you don't that you don't know and which coach would you say you'd be most shocked to find out they subscribe and it, you can't say Bill Snyder on it. Well, I'll be honest. I can't say with 100% certainty that David Shaw subscribes. I would think he does, but I don't know for sure. So he would be the one I'd be most surprised if he didn't. Chris Peterson subscribes, by the way. Mm-hmm. What was the other one? The most, the one you'd be most surprised be if they do? Not named Bill Snyder. Nick Saban. Okay. I'm guessing at no point has Nick Saban whipped out his credit card <laughs> and entered it in on the athletic. I would have said Mike Gundy. Um, Mike Gundy? I don't know. He's kind of unpredictable. Guess. Like Gus Malzahn. Guy, Gus Malzahn, guy, probably not a subscriber. No, I would guess not. The guy I would say most likely to subscribe, even though I don't know it, would be Joe Moorhead. He subscribes. Try All again. Right, so this is enough patting each other on the no, back. No, no, no. Yeah. I'm curious to know who your other answer would be. The the most likely to not subscribe? To I subscribe was, that you don't know for uh, sure. If it's not Joe Moorhead. Trying to think of people. Look, I've had conversations with this now with people. So I, some of the stuff I know, and some of the stuff I, you know. Do we know if Dana Holgerson's a subscriber? We do not know that. Because I would put but him in the do. category of surprise if he does. Yeah, I would. I would put that in there too. I would say Bobby Petrino. I would be very surprised if Bobby Petrino was a subscriber. Yeah. But wait a minute. You were supposed to answer because you said Joe Moorhead oh. would be most likely oh, yeah, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I told okay. you that he already was. Uh, so I had to come up with a different one. Uh, most likely to subscribe, maybe Sonny Dykes. Yeah, I would think Sonny Dykes would be a subscriber. I would think he is. I don't know. I could probably DM is. Chris Vanini right now and ask. You know, it's weird because I went, I, I think right before I left SI to come to the Athletic, I was I just had a long conversation at, T- at SMU with Sonny Dykes. So obviously I didn't bring up that I was changing jobs at that point, but I kind of had it in the back of my head. So that, that would be my guess. I'm thinking he is because Benini has been doing a recurring series on them in the offseason. 
So that's kind of cheating then a little bit. Bruce, what it comes down to is we're covering everybody, so they all need to subscribe to read about it. All right. I knew I was walking you into the <laughs> almost lot. Okay. Let's all right. Well, sorry about that 10-minute tangent there. Let me skip down to Joe Taylor. Stu and Bruce, thanks for the amazing pod as always. With the downfall of East Carolina football since the firing of Ruffin McNeil and the recent firing of the AD who let him go, it seems Scotty Montgomery is going to be ousted soon too. Do you think the Pirates should try to get McNeil to return to Greenville or do you think McNeil would even leave Oklahoma to return? That's, I don't know. I mean, I know Ruffin really well. I don't know if he would go back. I mean, that was pretty bitter how they handled that. It is his alma mater. I mean, he's the, of all the guys I know who I'd say would probably be the least vengeful who, who work in coaching, he is really high on the list. I mean, I'm not sure there's a nicer human being who's in FBS football right now. So I, my, my instinct is probably he wouldn't. But if there's anybody who would be okay with it, it might be him. I, it's hard to imagine. It was, it, was, it was such an ugly ouster. It's hard to imagine he would come back. But then again... We've seen it work in the opposite direction. You know, if Look, Randy, Randy Etzel can come back to UConn, certainly Ruffin McNeil could come back to Look, to as Tees ugly as Mike Leach's exit is, and he's nowhere near as uh, near, near uh, Ruffin on the humanity side, I wouldn't be shocked if he, well, I don't want to go down there, but you know what I mean. You know where I'm going with that. I do. Also, update from Chris Manini. Sonny Dykes is, in fact, a subscriber. Okay. But we're not going to go back down that road. Last question from Rich Miller. And that national title debate from ESPN just keeps, it's the gift that keeps on giving. Though this one is about the question we answered last week about best team that didn't win the championship. So he said, listening to the Audible, discuss the best team to not win a national title. And I almost dropped a Feldman F-bomb. The answer is 2011 LSU, who beat the Rose Bowl champs Oregon, Orange Bowl champ West Virginia, and BCS champion Alabama all away from home, plus a top five Arkansas team. Don't let the ending cloud what was a monster season. Hmm. You know, here's my problem with that. I actually saw that team in person. I, I spent the week with West Virginia when they were preparing for that team. And as talented as they were, they had a one glaring issue. And it was the quarterback. I'm sorry. It was like Jordan Jefferson. Six touchdowns, two interceptions, you know, for the year. They were terrible on offense in the uh, in the national title game. They weren't great on offense, quite honestly, when they when they won in Tuscaloosa that game. I think that he his points about the resume are are legit. It was a great resume up until the last game, but I do think to be called the greatest or the best of this group, you have to be more of a complete team. That was a team that basically beat you with their defense and very minimal offense. And certainly they have no passing just, game. Just so you know, they averaged 355 yards of offense. I mean, that's pretty dreadful. Yeah, so, and also, you know, if they lost the national championship rematch game 9-6, to six, then maybe we can have this discussion. But how am I supposed to overlook 21 nothing in the most important game of the season? And by the way, the here they have kind of had a three-horse running back group: Spencer Ware, Michael Ford, Alfred Blue. It wasn't like this was Leonard Fournette in the backfield. You know, the defense was loaded. Obviously, Honey Badger was phenomenal, but Maurice Claiborne. They had a bunch of studs there, but I don't know. The offense to me was was so underwhelming. I just yeah. think you got, you got to factor that in. All right. Well, if anybody else, so I said I'm trying to remember now. I said 2016 Alabama. What did you say? 
I think I went with the Miami team that didn't. That was that, yeah. that cr- blew out Florida in the Sugar Bowl. So it's two thousand Miami. Oh, oh yeah. You said that's right. You didn't say oh two Miami. You said two thousand Miami. Yes, that was the Dan Morgan Miami team as opposed to. By the way, if I was an Ohio, if I was an Ohio State fan, I would have been ticked off on the other end that they got like that team. You know, they didn't blow a lot of people out, but they beat a really loaded Miami team in the bowl game. You can say whatever you want about Terry Porter's call. I mean, that was still a game that went in overtime. They were really good on defense. They didn't make a bunch of mistakes. So, I mean, I felt like they got kind of the short end of the, sh- the stick as well in that, in that analytics. Oh, yeah, job. I stood up for them. They were they were the worst one, right? Uh, they were number 21 out of 21, I believe. They had a lot of close calls. They, in some ways, you would... No, they're not like 2011 LSU because they have Maurice Claret. Like, they had a, a legit stud tailback. And Krenzel wasn't star quarterback by any means, but the, the play that will always stand out to me from that season was they were about to lose to Purdue on the road, and Craig Krenzel threw a bomb to uh, uh, Chris Gamble? Sure. Chris Gamble or the other great receiver on that team whose name is escaping me. Brian um, Hartline? I don't know. No, not Brian Hartline. <laughs> Sorry. It's many years later. No, there was a... Oh, crap. Every, every Ohio State fan listening to this is going to kill me right now. Who was the star receiver on the 2002 national title team? I thought it was Chris Gamble. He went both ways. I remember He went both story. ways. That's why he was like more better known. But no, they had a... I want to say a first-round receiver opposite him. Well, who was the well, pass interference penalty on? Oh, that Chris was on Gamble. Chris Gamble. Chris Gamble. All right, I'm going to look this up. And by the way, Vanini responded that he thinks James Franklin would be the most likely because he reads everything about his team, which is true. That other receiver? Yeah. Ooh, it's 2002. I did 2012. I'm like, wait a minute. That's not right. It is um, Michael Jenkins. Okay. First round pick in 2004. Actually, believe it or not, it was Chris Gamble with the 28th pick as a DB and Michael Jenkins with the 29th pick. Which is, by the way, one reason I know people say we shouldn't judge them by NFL players. That's why we're so high on 01 Miami. But that Ohio State team had, ready, real quick? Sure. Uh, second round pick, Mike Doss. First round picks, Will Smith, Chris Gamble, Michael Jenkins. Mike Nugent was a second round pick. And then in 04 alone, and these guys were all major guys on the 02 team. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14 players drafted, including... AJ Hawk line Craig Krenzel. No, AJ Hawk was later. AJ Hawk was on that team as a backup. Yeah, he, that, he, he was, was drafted in 2006, so he would have been. I'm at, pretty sure he was on that team. He was on that team, but he would have been a freshman who didn't play much. Oh, you if you're go, okay, you want to go everybody that was on that team? No, I don't. It would take it would take a while because a whole lot of guys got drafted in '06 who. I would then have to go back and look if they were... Well, yeah, I'd have to go back and look if they were on the team. Like, Santonio Holmes, was he on the 0-2 team? Probably not. I think so. Because he probably, he was, probably was a three-year guy. I think he might have been on the roster. Maybe he... I think that he came in... I thought he came in the same year as Mike DeAndre, A.J. Hawk, Rob, Bobby Carpenter. I thought he was in that class, actually. Okay. You may be right. Great. That was another good section of emails. As always, you can send your emails to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. We will be, as best we can, trying to do this every Monday now with the start of the season fast approaching. That's all we got for this week. I'm sure we'll have another update in the Urban Meyer saga by the time we come back on next week. We'll see you next time. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to The Audible at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. 
We'd like to thank our producer, Nick Fink, and we'd like to thank Kevin and the Octaves for our intro song, Dangerous. You can download their music on iTunes or Spotify. If you haven't subscribed to The Athletic yet, what are you waiting for? Read both myself and Bruce and all our other great writers there. Go to theathletic.com slash theaudible and get 25% off. You can also follow our coverage at The Athletic CFB. You can follow me at SL Mandel. Follow Bruce at Bruce Feldman CFB. We'll see you next time.